This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. Uh, I'm your host, Flick Ford, and it's, uh, it's funny. Great to be back on air. A huge shout out to the wonderful Lisa Kovacevic for covering for me as host for the past month, plus Stewie Richards and all our wonderful guest reviewers um, and Cal Chapman, Chapman for his panelling wizardry. Tonight I'm joined by Cerise Howard. Welcome, Cerise. Hi, Flick. And Eloise Ross. Hey, Eloise. Hey, Flick. So starting this week, Australia's longest-running film society, Melbourne Cinematheque, is spotlighting the work of Australian filmmaker Gillian Armstrong. Now, a a little disclaimer, we are all board members of Melbourne Cinematheque, so we do have a a dog in the fight, so to speak. Um, Gillian Armstrong is often credited with playing a very significant role in the revival of Australian cinema in the 70s with her highly acclaimed period drama, My Brilliant Career. Notably, she was the first woman to direct a 30 35mm feature film in Australia for over four decades. Uh, Gillian Armstrong is also one of the key creatives of the Australian New Wave movement of the 80s and her amazingly diverse filmography includes the documentary Smokes and Lollies from 1976, her debut feature length My Brilliant Career, Little Women from 1994, starring Winona Ryder, Susan Sarandon, Christian Bale and Kirsten Dunst. She also directed Oscar and Lucinda, starring Kate Blanchett and Ray Fiennes. Charlotte Grey, starring Blanchett again, as well as her 1982 comedy musical Starstruck and her 1987 maternal melodrama High Tide, which we'll discuss in more detail later tonight. It is my greatest pleasure to announce that we are joined tonight by one of the most influential figures in Australian cinema, Gillian Armstrong. Welcome to Primal Screen, Gillian. Thank you, thank you, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Gillian, your filmography, um, (laughs) as per my intro, is tremendously diverse from fiction to documentary, from comedies to period drama to melodrama to biopics. Um, You've worked on independent projects, commercial projects. You've worked with big stars and newcomers. Um, And, of course, your films have been the subject of many academic articles. And I think there's a tendency to define filmmakers with a signature style um, how would you define yourself as a filmmaker and, and kind of what are you most drawn to? Well, I suppose, num- number one, it's story and it's stories that that I personally relate to. Um, but underneath it all, I think looking back at it, because quite, quite often it was a gut reaction. It wasn't an intellectual reaction and it wasn't a plan, um, but it was like there was something there that, uh, interested me, that I wanted to explore. And when I look back, quite often I think it's about the human condition and it's what makes us who we are and what we are. But I think underneath it all, through everything I've done, there's an element of hope, I mm. think, um, definitely. That I'm, and, you know, so I would say because, you know, over the years I kept it was branded so often as this woman filmmaker, um, which I thought was a really sexist term because I just think I'm, you know, they're my films, you know, good or bad, if you hate them or not. But I think that underneath it, I would, 
be proud to say that I'm a humanist. Of course, I'm a feminist and all a million other labels, but I think it's an interest in people. Mm. Yeah, there is. Um, it's interesting because, yeah, your films are often typified as having this focus on female characters and, and narratives particular to the female experience and, and kind of capturing the the complex interiority of women's lives. I mean, many of your films do feature really strong and complex female characters, um, you know, often portrayed with, with wonderful depth and, and realism. Um, you've worked with actors like Judy Davis and Winona Ryder, Kate Blanchett, um, Sarandon that I mentioned before, and, and Claudia Carvin. Um, I'm just conscious of the fact that female filmmakers um, are often pigeoned, pigeonholed as, as making female-focused films. Um, and so it's interesting hearing your That's take right. on that. And do they ever ask um, Peter Weir or, or, <laughs> totally. or, or um, Baz Luhrmann, you know, why do you make all these films about men? I mean, it's, that's why I'm saying it's yeah. like a weird pigeonholing, you know, one way people are trying to be positive, um, but another way, don't they realise they never ask that question? Mm. Um, do they ask the director of Parasite, you know, why, you know, he... He has so many films that are about men. Um, no, they don't. So that's what started to, especially as, you know, I was labelled so early in my career. I mean, I would, you know, obviously um, my brilliant career was a book that was written by this incredibly amazing young woman, Miles Franklin, that, that was a feminist. Um, it was her voice and her cry for why can't we be free? Why can't our world be equal? Um, and so, you know, I shouldn't complain that it was a huge hit and I got branded as that really sort of like Judy and I, I think everyone thought we were Sibylla. Um, and I believed in everything she said. Um, her life wasn't my life. I, I actually had a, a lot in a lot of ways a more privileged life as a, as a young woman. You know, I had, I had a family that did believe that a woman should have choices and that we could do anything. Mm, and I think you raise a really interesting point that we never um, actually hear the phrase male filmmakers, which is maybe something we need to think about a bit more. Um, I was thinking, you, you know, your entry, your formal entry into the film industry began when you were awarded a, a scholarship to Australia's first and, and only film school at the time, the Australian Film and Television School. I read that you were originally interested in theatre costume, being a theatre costume designer, um, but then were drawn to film. Oh, um, no, no, you've forgotten. I'm a <laughs> Melbourne girl. I started at Swinburne. Oh, of course. <laughs> yes, and, and also I want to say I was a very slow um, learner as a filmmaker. So I did, yeah, no, I did a four-year diploma of art, made yeah. in film and TV at Swinburne. Yeah. yeah. And then after... Um, a couple of years out, um, you know, after six months of waitressing, finally got a job as an assistant editor. And that, the timing was just so perfect when I look back at it that um, just when I realised how much time I'd wasted at film school, listen to me if you are young film students out there <laughs> right now, that we had equipment, I had other people who could be the crew and out in the real world, it cost so much money. And I thought I could have made so many more films. Um, so when I saw the ad, this is when I was an assistant editor in a commercial production house and realised that very few people ever get to make films and stories that express their own vision, um, that the real world, quite often we're making things for other people, we're making things for, you know, to make a living and maybe we're doing ads or whatever. And so when I saw the ad 
at, for the first year of the National Film School, um, I was in Sydney as a young assistant and I'd been one for about a year and I was about to step up. Um, I worked with a great team who said, you know, you could be an editor and so on and I saw that ad and they all said, no, don't, don't go back to film school. But I knew how much I needed to learn. I knew that we'd really never work with actors at, um, at Swinburne and so I went along to the... Um, the interview and I was literally, I was so driven up, you know, after a year out going, oh, what a fool I was. And I was like, do we get to work with actors? Do we get to have professional crews? How much money have we got? How many films can we make in the one year? It was a pilot training scheme. And I was selected one of the 12 throughout Australia at that time. And I was, I was, it was like one of those blessed things. I was ready for it. And I got in and I, you know, was very, very driven and blessed to be with such a wonderful group of people and Story Walton who ran that school. So I thank Swinburne for, for my early training, which taught me that filmmaking is an art and a craft, which I still think some of the film schools in this country don't see. I think that was such a great beginning because that's the other thing I meant to say. I said, you know, yes, I'm a humanist filmmaker, but I love cinema and I love the art and I love design and what you can do with with cinematography and sound and music um so yes I thank them both for a great beginning well all of those um all of that comes out very much so in in your filmography I'm kind of curious I mean you've your career has spanned over so many decades and and like I said you're often kind of um, labelled as, as being one of the key figures in the Australian revival of, um, sorry, the revival of Australian cinema. What, what, are you, what, are you, what have you been like the key shifts that you've seen during that time? Well, first of all, for everyone who's forgotten, um, the revival of Australian cinema was this because of the Australian government supporting the arts and deciding we should have our film, own Australian film industry telling our own stories. And they set up the Australian Film Commission. Once again, timing for me was amazing. Just in my final year at Swinburne, I think Fred Skepsi um, was shooting maybe one of his a short film for Grant around that time and we students were on it and he was actually a wonderful mentor for me. But the key thing was when I came out of film school, there were no Australian films in cinemas at all. The mm-hmm. first Australian film that I ever saw was 2000 Weeks, Tim Burstall's film at the Carlton Cinema. And I have to say, when I walked in there and I heard Australian voices on the screen, I thought, this is just horrible. This doesn't, <laughs> this doesn't sound like a real film. Mm-hmm. I, and we had this incredible industry um, in the 1930s and 40s and it was basically completely killed because the American distributors bought up all the cinema chains so the only films that could get on were American films and that's so we all we saw was American films and, and except for some of the little art house cinemas where we could see some maybe some French and Italian and, and Australian TV was really the only place where you could make drama and that's what I thought when I got out of Swinburne the ABC did some pretty good drama if only I could one day be standing at the side in the wings holding the script um, um, and, tell, and doing continuity. That's what I thought that was, you know, basically my big aim. So 
to have the whole thing change and suddenly you've got Fred Skepsy, Peter Weir, um, Bruce Beresford doing these amazing films and Australia was funding them and our stories went out to the world. Um, that was just so brilliant and ma- it made me realise, well, I can be part of this and, you know, step by step. It was sort of six years later after I finished the film school that I, you know, after a number of short films and The Singer and Dancer and the, my first 50-minute film that I finally got my brilliant career. But, no, no, we um, are absolutely indebted to um, the lobbying of Philip Adams and, um, and a number of other key people, Barry Jones, who pushed and it was a Liberal government, it was John Gorton, that set up a film commission and set up money to promote and help young filmmakers and young writers. And we really have to hang on to that. Mm. We've really got to hang on because we're getting bulldozed now by the streamers. And now that you've given me the opportunity to talk, I will say <laughs> that we all need to write to our local members and say that these streamers, these giant corporations, uh, basically no money goes back into the Australian film industry. We've really been lobbying the Australian government to say just take a percentage. It's like attack them and put the money back into our cinema as they do in Denmark and in France and half the countries in Europe have done that to, to Netflix and to Apple and so on. And, and we need to do it too because it's got tougher and tougher to make feature films here and our dramas are still very under-budgeted, our TV dramas. Mm. And it's interesting, you know, when you reflect on what was a boom time for for Australian cinema during the 80s, it was backboned by financial support from the Whitlam government. So, yeah, it's interesting to see what impact that has in a very real sense of the creative output of our, of our, of our nation when you actually allow for filmmakers, and particularly young filmmakers like you would have been at the time, to... Yes. to experiment and to try out different styles. I'm really excited for tonight's episode because we're we're going to be talking about two films that are quite different of, of yours, Starstruck and, and High Tide. Um, Cerise, I, I know that Starstruck's a favourite of yours. Well, it is very dear to my heart. It's, uh, <laughs> oh, it's, good. I love my Starstruck fans. Yeah, well, <laughs> strangely, I was only Starstruck fairly recently. I hadn't encountered it. I knew of it, but had never seen it. I don't think it was much in circulation for quite a while for, I'm sure, some peculiar reasons. Um, oh, well, because there were, there were no prints, so we yeah. thank the National Film and Sound Archive, also government-funded, and we need yeah. them. Um, to, they restored it. Yeah, and no, I we saw that. Had, yeah. Yes, we had a brilliant screening at the Melbourne Film Festival maybe was it four years ago um, where it, at Acme and it looked abs- and sounded absolutely oh, st- yeah. wonderful. And um, a lot of the old fans who at the time uh, may have been about a- age 12 were all in their 40s and screaming and... It was a really like one of the you know, highlights of my life that there are still people who, because we had this teenage following, which we didn't expect. Um, it was because a couple of the songs became hits. We had um, two songs that were in the top ten. And um, so we had kids who went to see it like you do when you're a fan over and over. Um, so they knew all the words. It became a bit like a Rocky Horror thing that, you know, they were singing along and, and I heard in San Francisco where it became a late-night cult film um, for, the, for the gay scene, they had late-night screenings and people bought blow-up sharks and were waving them over <laughs> their head. Um, so, yeah, it, it had a very mixed reaction in Australia because it was my second film after Brilliant Career. So there I, you know, that got into competition in Cannes and then, you know, it was a New York Film Festival and so on. And it was considered um, that was a wonderful 
classy film and we all won awards. And they were like, I think David Stratton even wrote, what is Gillian Armstrong doing making this pop, you know, bit of rubbish basically? Although I always love the script and I think that it's actually a heartfelt tale about family as well as obviously um, some wonderful music and, and the brilliant cast that I had. With Ross and Joe, it, the would, two would have been around the, the peak of Countdown Mania at that time. It seems like a, a film that should have hit the zeitgeist perfectly. I, I wasn't in Australia at that time, but I, I caught up with Countdown pretty quickly. Oh, right. Well, Countdown was, I don't know how many years Countdown was going. I was watching Countdown when I was 12. Um, so, uh, uh, so, yes, Molly has had such, I've got to say, Molly Meldrum, who did produce one of the songs, he produced um, Ross's song, I Want to Live in a House, which is still one of my favourite, like, film moments in my own films, um, that little section. Um, he's he's been so good and strong about putting on all sorts of music and always supporting Australian bands. Um, my producer, David Elphick, I'll tell you a little side story, he um, was so thrilled that Molly read the script and loved it and David Elphick, the producer, and Stephen McLean, the writer, all used to work in a rock journal called Go Set in Melbourne and then in London together. So the, David, my producer, was like, this is fantastic. You know, Molly's going to be so behind it and everything. And then he screened the finished film to him really early, like my sort of f- first final cut, and then the film doesn't come out for months later, you know, after the posters are designed and so on. And when it finally came out and Molly, who, by the way, had called me and raved to me on the phone um, for about half an hour how much he loved every single thing and so on, when it finally came on Countdown and we thought, yay, at last, you know, Molly's going to, he went, oh, so now we've got a clip from a new Australian film um, called um, uh, Starstruck. <laughs> And it was that thing, you, I mean, if you're a publicist, you have to know the personality. Obviously, Molly is someone that when he's just seen something, he's full and excited. But then the excitement had waned in the six months before we came out. Even though but anyway, he, he, he was at the Acme screening and was. the crowd went wild when they spotted him up the back of his hat. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and he really did, it was, he was just as excited 30 years later. Well, there's <laughs> such a Molly-esque character in there. There is, yeah, yes. That is sort of based around a Molly, yes. yes. No accident. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was good friends with the writer, long-time friend. And what prompted you to, to make a, a musical at that stage when it's, Australia didn't have a, a huge tradition of movie musicals? Uh, well, what happened was that after Brilliant Career, where I was literally offered so much and things from all over the world, and I was also, suddenly in this little narrow thing where I was offered every screenplay about a woman achiever, the first woman to fly a plane, climb a mountain, and they're all period because I also got this terrible label, which I always found a bit sexist too. She does period films because girls like dresses. Um, so um, I thought I want to do something that's really different because as much as brilliant creators close to me, there are other sides of me. And I was a Melbourne girl who was, you know, watching Wendy Saddington in, um, uh, and bands in Melbourne clubs many years ago and I've always, always loved music. And I heard through friends about this script, about these two kids, um, and I heard that it was funny as well and they sneaked me the script. And then I got my agent who asked David Elphick, the producer, would he be, you know, that said that Jill loves it, would he be? And he basically had the same reaction. 
oh, she does those girly, lacy films, she would be wrong for <laughs> Starstruck. So it was really only, it was so lucky, I happened to be at a party where Stephen McLean, the writer, was, and I, and I had these sort of blue suede, they were like Lois Lane shoes, like 1940s, high heels with like the thick heel, and he said, um, I love those shoes, and I said, and I know that you're Stephen McLean and I want to do your script. I love it, I love it, I love it. And he said, anyone who's got shoes like that can direct my film. Fantastic. <laughs> and he obviously talked David Elphick into it. So, um, If you've just tuned in, uh, we've been speaking with filmmaker Gillian Armstrong and this week Melbourne Cinematheque are presenting a showcase of Gillian's work at ACME. Um, starting from tomorrow, members of Melbourne Cinematheque will be treated to two screenings each week for three weeks. For um, and featuring, it's featuring some of your best films, so I'm very excited about it. And actually, it's very difficult to get hold of your films, Gillian. So I know a lot of fans are will be there because um, they're not streaming anywhere and very hard to get hold of. So um, do head to melbournecinematech.org for more information and to book your tickets. Gillian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure um, speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Prime. Oh, no, thank you, and 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 I do thank you so much for digging through them all and finding all the student films and things. And um, I saw that Saturday Night, uh, which was my film school documentary, because I said I don't want to do documentaries. Never, I never want to do them. <laughs> so I did sort of a half recreation, and it's a story um, based around my best friend Stuart Campbell, the photographer who's no longer with us. And um, I am played by, by my sister's best friend, Meryn, who I, I think is going to come along and see it for the first time in 30 years. So, oh, um, yeah, no one's run Starstruck. And it was at the time like um, absolutely breakthrough because it was a, a gay story and nobody was doing um, gay stories. So I'm also very proud of Starstruck and, um, and my dear friend Stuart Campbell, who's the star of it, playing well, himself. Well, we'll all be there um, for the next three weeks. Um, I'm very excited about it. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford, Cerise Howard and Eloise Ross. On tonight's show, we're spotlighting the work of one of Australia's most prolific and highly awarded directors, Gillian Armstrong. We spoke with Gillian Armstrong about her filmography and the changes that she's seen in Australian cinema. Uh, you can, of course, listen back to that interview on the Triple R website or via our podcast. Now, Armstrong's work is a kind of wonderful cacophony of genres and styles. Um, she often switches between documentary and fiction and commercial and independent and small and large scale. However, there are common themes that surface through her work and, you know, women and their intimate lives often do take centre stage. But more than that, Armstrong's filmography expresses a deep understanding of human emotion and, and the sometimes quite fraught relationships that we have with one another. Um, we have the headstrong protagonist of My Brilliant Career, played by Judy Davis. Um, we had Ruth Cracknell as a lonely older woman who's estranged from her daughter in The Singer and the Dancer. And we've also got the, the young three young girls who feature in um, Gillian Armstrong's documentaries. 
Um, as I mentioned, Melbourne Cinematheque is highlighting the work of Gillian Armstrong for the next three weeks. And one of the films that is being featured is Gillian Armstrong's comedy, comedy musical from 1982, Starstruck, which features uh, the track we just played prior, the Joe Kennedy's My Belief in You. Um, and here is a little clip of Gillian Armstrong's 1982 film, Starstruck. How do you feel? Sweaty and dizzy with all these silver spots swimming in front of my eyes. Angus, how did you talk me into this? Because you wanted me to talk you into it. God, you get away with murder. <laughs> what about all the junk you've conned me into? Like the blue hair? And what about the time you claimed you'd learn witchcraft? That was years ago. Hey, up here. And you put a hex on me, so you said and made me eat crushed worms and dog shit to cast away the evil spell. It was only liverwurst. Angus, is anyone taking any notice of this? I reckon they soon will. Shot in Sydney, Starstruck star Joe Kennedy and Ross O'Donovan as two teenagers attempting to break into the music industry despite the reservations of their working class family. Cerise and Eloise, as members of the Melbourne Cinematheque Programming Committee, you were both uh, rather instrumental in including this in our upcoming season on Gillian Armstrong's work. Starstruck, of course, is something of a cult classic. Um, but talk us through why it was so important to clu- include it in this season. Um, let's start with you, Cerise. Oh, for me, it's a no-brainer. It just had to be there. It's my favourite film of hers. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the most me of her filmography. And I, <laughs> I also i am not intimately acquainted with all of her filmography. So some of this for me, like I think it is, often is for us programmers, is getting acquainted with the full... Well, more of the the oeuvre of forgiven filmmakers or movements that we program, and others are, of course, sharing the ones that we love most. And I mean, I just adore this. It's uh, an extremely vibrant camp musical with incredibly great punk pop tunes um, and amazing production design. What's not to love? Three. Yeah, I I agree with you. I mean, it is sort of one of. I think it's very special. I've only came to it recently as well, Cerise, uh, in the last sort of couple of years. But it is one of the most, I don't know, Australian Gillian Armstrong yeah. films out there. Of course, she's had great success uh, in, working internationally as well, but it's so Australian. Um, it's so Obviously, it has influences from, like, American musicals, French musicals, all these things, but in terms of being this on-the-ground kind of Sydney focus, on-the-ground and on a tightrope, I shall say, focus. Um, In Sydney, it's really just, I think, wonderfully Australian. I mean, I also think that as a programmer, one of the reasons why it was so important to programmer was because the NFSA, as Gillian said, has restored it. Um, And now that, you know, people have a chance to see it, uh, it's obviously wonderful to be able to screen it and sort of, you know, give it more airtime, more screen time. I think I saw it first. It was on DVD or it is on DVD, but it's been long out of print um, and there is a copy sort of floating around somewhere. Um, I think I saw it when I was at La Trobe. La Trobe University had a 
a DVD copy of it, but I don't think it's been restored. So, or, you know, really since then. So hopefully this NFSA restoration might lead to something or more people being able to see it anyway. And the cinema for now, I mean, what a golden opportunity people have to, to see it. I think it's in the third week of our program, uh, two opportunities to catch yes, it. Yes, yeah. I think you're correct. Yeah, and that, yeah, that is a, a good thing to remind listeners that, yeah, there are, if you can't make the Tuesday night, you've always yeah. got the Wednesday. And, yeah, what a wonderful thing to be returning to Acme as well and for these films to be screened there, particularly her shorts, which are going to be accompanying each of the screenings. Yeah, so we have, there's a program of shorts that is on this week. Uh, I can't remember exactly what's in it. Flick, you'll have to maybe do oh, the honours here. Yeah. But but each feature is accompanied by a short or maybe several shorts um, on each night that we're screening that come from, you know, those student days, those afters years that Gillian was talking about. Sorry, I'm, I'm doing a... Little... The butt, <laughs> Let's talk about Starstruck some more in the meantime. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I did go through and I, I think that, you know, it's a wonder, I, the, I mean, for each of them, um, the, the, I, I can go through the, the, um, the screening program if you like, but I think for the first one, what we've got is we're going to have The Roof Needs Mowing, um, which is a wonderful eight-minute short and, and that was the, um, the breakthrough student film that um, Gillian was talking about. Um, and we also have, um, oh, there's quite a few. What have we got? We've also got... Um, the Singer and the Dancer, is yeah, that on? Yeah, The Singer and the Dancer is this also week. in there. I'm very excited about that. Um, Ruth Cracknell stars in that, am yeah, I right? Yeah, and um, Saturday Night, which is um, I think at the very final part of the screening. But there's, I've, I'm so glad that you include Starstruck because like you were saying, Cerise, we kind of don't often, particularly at the time that it was made, musicals were not so much of Australian, so, so much a part of Australian cinema, but they are now like that is very much you think about lots of the recent um you know blockbusters in australian cinema um sapphires um brand new day i mean i picked two indigenous films but you know what i mean there is a lot of musicals made priscilla queen of the desert where but this is kind of occupies quite a different space it seems a bit more radical but so 80s it's also curiously working class Mm. it's it's definitely a, a a class factor to it, the, the, the family at the centre of it all and the pub where a lot of the action uh, is centred around and, and you know, this pub in, is in jeopardy. Um, and you know, it's such a, a vision of a, a Sydney that I don't know if it exists any, anywhere anymore. I haven't encountered a place like that any time lately. And it's, it's, and it's sort of the dance, the actual choreography is somehow very Australian. I'm reminded of Sharpie dancers as, you know, these peculiar Australian expressions of movement of bodies. There's no Sharpie dancers per se in this, but there's still something very Australian about the Corrie. And I, it's hard to put my finger on it, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> it's like watching rabid teenagers on the set of Countdown just flail about madly. There's that energy in this film and it's of that era. And, um, and it's, it's really captured that in a way that... Um, I don't think any other film has. I don't know. There's, you know, something about that, you know, the dingy bar at the start where there's a band playing the Wombats, um, I think they're called, and then the very distinctly Australian pub and front bar, as you say, Cerise, that this family occupies. I think one or maybe more musical numbers occur in this bar, on the bar top, you know, this kind of thing. Um, We have the opera house a musical number occurs in the opera house, something to do, you know, there's a lot of train imagery and kind of suburban 
imagery like the distinctly Australian suburbs is really wonderful in this film and is something that I'm just so connected to when I see things like this and when I see I think anything of this particular era but certainly when a filmmaker keys into those kinds of spaces then you know it certainly has something really rich to offer. And it's interesting because this is a film that performed, um, I think, much better internationally than it did uh, here. And I wonder whether, you know, similar to what Gillian was saying earlier about that sort of sense of almost cultural cringe that we often have, and maybe only now we're coming to terms with it. Well, I think there's something so campy about this as well that Mm. it was, you know, probably for a lot of, uh, you know, the more macho elements of Australian culture. (laughs) Yes, it's hit norm. You know, seen in the 80s, mm. this, this probably could have been a slightly tough sell, even though it is actually so linked to the that phenomenon of countdown and that sort of teen pop, early music video mania. You know, this, this film is full of that, that energy and these strange choreographed spectacles, which occasionally harken back to Busby Berkeley, but are more often of the sort of Russell Mulcahy calibre. And they're so fantastic. They're so much fun. And, and there is you know, a very clear reference to Molly uh, and perhaps his <laughs> closetedness at that time in this particular character, this amazingly campy um, uh, musical number, song and dance number set around a swimming pool, which you know, I, is so, so great, so, so great. <laughs> I think as well it has like a, I mean, I'm saying this in the most appreciative, loving way possible, but it has like a dag, a dagginess to it, a totally. specifically Australian dagginess, and maybe that doesn't, doesn't appeal to maybe a particular set or some people were confronted by it uh, or something like this. Like it's very kind of genuine and pure in a sense. I loved hearing Gillian say that, at its heart, it was just a heartfelt story of family connection um, because it sort of is and we have this beautiful relationship between a brother and sister um, and obviously a family supporting each other. So there are maybe a range of themes that, Mm. I don't know, audiences weren't sort of expecting, kind of didn't understand being presented in a particular way Mm. in 1982 I don't know I think you also touch upon something that comes out across a lot of Armstrong's work which is that we're so often used to um, a romantic narrative or particular relationships being given dominance within a narrative and yet in a lot of Armstrong's work we actually have a a subversion of that of sorts where you do focus on family familial relations or it focuses on relationships that don't often get um, airtime for one of a better phrase don't get put on stage or don't get yeah put on they're screen. not the not the status quo mm. not the like easily conforming relationships or perspectives yeah and and it's kind of almost a bit of a, a trick of expectation because you think oh okay now the film will focus in on this particular um, thread and it doesn't it kind of will subvert that expectation and I think I always enjoy that with her work even across different genres which is quite a quite a mastery really you know, I learned only just today that uh, this film shares a production designer with uh, the original theatrical incarnations in, I think, London and Sydney of the Rocky Horror Show oh, and then really? the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And to me, that oh. makes so much sense. <laughs> it's and, all falling into place now. And it now. is. And if, if I had to try to, you know, come up with one of those, this is this film meets that film things to try to describe this and, pit, and sell it to anyone who hasn't seen it, I'd say it is actually the Rocky Horror Picture Show meets the castle. 
That is a wonderful. <laughs> it's not bad, is it? No, that's a perfect. And you'd um, want to see that film, wouldn't you? I would. Yeah. And if you want to see this film, Starstruck, it's going to be screening at Acme on April 25 and 26 as part of Melbourne Cinematheque's showcase of Australian filmmaker Gillian Armstrong. For more tickets and for more information, you can head to melbournecinematheque.org. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Scripted by Laura Jones, um, High Tide stars Judy Davis as Lily, a backup singer for an Elvis impersonator. When Lily becomes stranded in a small coastal town during the band's tour, she has a chance encounter with a young girl called Ali, played with wonderful realism by a 14-year-old, Claudia Carvin. Um, And this small coastal town, and specifically the Mermaid Caravan Park, becomes the locus of a strange interrelationship between the seemingly wayward Lily, um, the neglected but kind of quite faithful Allie, and Allie's overly controlling grandmother, Bette, who's played by Jan Adele. Uh, The film also stars Colin Friel as a single dad that Lily meets at a bingo night, um, and who she promptly gifts with two raw chickens, um, Um, the prize of winning the bingo. High Tide was nominated for a whole host of AFIs when it was released, including Best Film, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Best Sound, um, with Judy Davis and Jan um, Adele winning for their respective categories. Um, Here is a short scene from High Tide in which Lily really tests the patience of her band members. How's it going, girls? Oh, good, good. What's the house like? Oh, part for the course. Lily, let's get ready. We've got about ten minutes. What about the band? They'll be all right. Don't worry about it. We've had to talk through. Lily, I asked you to get ready. Now, you've been in here for 50 minutes. It's good enough for everybody else. It's good enough for you. All right, keep your hair on. I look about a hundred. Yeah, that'll be all right. Thanks, Trace. No, my wig. You're kidding. Oh, my God. shit. I think I've left my wig behind. Oh, great work. Great work. Jesus, you are hopeless. Why is it everywhere we go, something goes wrong where you're... Found it! That was the rather charming uh, Judy Davis, who I, I mean, I watched I watch this recently with my mum actually, and I took so much pleasure in Judy Davis's character. Um, I don't know how you, when you first watched this, Eloise, but, and I think revisiting it, um, I, there's just so much joy and humour, dark humour in this film, plus quite complex emotions. Um, I can see why it was included in this. I think it's a, such an interesting comparison to Starstruck. Uh, tell me about, about your feelings about High Tide. So, oh, I can't. Oh, good. Yeah. And um, you can hear me? Yes, now. we can. We good. can. <laughs> okay. Like it's, I just, I mean, you mentioned Judy Davis and you're getting excited just listening to her voice. Like her performance is so energetic and I don't think anyone can perform like her 
in her very specific way with her kind of, you know, the way her tone works and kind of how nuanced she could be and how controlling of your gaze she Mm. can be on screen. And so she's such a formidable presence in this film, which is really necessary. And as well, Claudia Carvin is so, so good. She's wonderful. I had the rather um, unsettling experience of um, watching this with my mum, as I said, but I actually as a child, looked a lot like Claudia Carvin. So <laughs> I was watching it with my mum and it is a film all about mothers and and um, mm. it was kind of surreal, I have to admit. Um, but both performances, and especially from a 14-year-old Claudia Carvin, yeah. what a performance. And I think Armstrong is often credited with bringing out these sorts of performances from her actors. So we see that in High Tide for sure. In fact, everyone is quite exceptional. You know, let's not forget Jan Adele, Colin Friel, yeah. both all add something quite significant to this. Yeah, I mean, there are brilliant performances. It's such a brilliant story and really well told. Um, but I think that also it's just a reconsideration. I mean, if we're talking about Gillian Armstrong's talent um, and how wonderful her films are, it's a reconsideration of like a really solid, powerful genre, something that she does, I think, and proven herself really good at time and again. In this case, the maternal melodrama, mm. which we have kind of um, adjusted to an Australian setting. I know I talked about this with Starstruck as well, but this is such an Australian film. <laughs> so yes. it reminds me of camping trips with my family when I was a kid. Um, it couldn't kind of exist anywhere else but Eden, so it's set in this, like, fabulously named Australian <laughs> coastal town of Eden. Um, it's just really fantastic. One of the – so it's a 35-millimetre print that we're screening. I saw this way back when the um, – <laughs> Cerise is excited. I saw this way back when the Acme still had their MediaTek in operation. I saw a VHS – of the film and then I did see it again when Miff screened the 35 millimeter from NFSA a couple of years ago um so I've kind of seen it in very disparate I think versions VHS and 35 millimeter but it's not available in a more accessible format so it's really important that it's being screened it's just such a kind of key part Mm. of not only Gillian Armstrong's history, but the Australian film industry's history. Absolutely. And I love that you mentioned the location, Eden, in New South Wales, because there is an, a, a very um, beautiful specificity to that place and what it brings out, because it has this sense of this open ocean that's just there, but there's a lot of claustrophobia within that sort of small caravan community. Mm. And I, again, she's dealing with the working class. And I, I really love how, particularly Lily's character, Um, You know, I was interested that Gillian Armstrong was initially drawn to costume design because there's a scene in which Lily is dancing on on the coast in this long, heavy, grungy almost jacket and she's just so at odds with the ocean. And I love comparing her to Claudia Carvin's Alley, who she even calls Fish Feet, and she's wearing these little boots that um, often used for sailing but also surfing and, and Ali's a surfer. So she's perfectly in aligned with her environment where Lily isn't. And I, I just loved that little touches that just add to this very layered film, which is quite a simple premise, but mm. there's so much uh, depth uh, given to each of these characters and their different hurts, I suppose. Yeah, it does pull at your heartstrings, mm. this one. So have to maybe warn audiences to bring a box <laughs> of tissues. But there certainly is, you know, this um, maybe 
proclivity to love costumes and design and kind of, you know, the visual spectacle of things in this film. I mean, there's a couple of musical performances or kind of. Um, there's an Elvis impersonator who comes <laughs> along. Um, it's all very sort of out there um, and you know, just a really great experience. And let's not forget the score, which um, is it almost has a thriller-esque um, <laughs> sort of tone to it with the, the saxophone at the end. Um, I think this will be one that is really exciting to see on the, the big screen. So I'm excited that we're going to have it for um, at Acme. And um, if you would like to see High Tide, it is screaming, screening at Acme on April 19 and 20 for Melbourne Cinematheque's showcase of Gillian Armstrong's career. Um, for more information and for tickets, you can head to melbournecinematheque.org. Um, Apart from the two that we've discussed tonight, are there any other films that you're super excited about, Cerise, for, for this spotlight? I'm, I'm really looking forward to revisiting Unfolding Florence, mm. which is, I, I recall, being a really quite fun and um, quite innovative documentary about a, a notable Australian, Florence Broadhurst, uh, a larger-than-life character who uh, became something of a wallpaper magnate. And I think to this day, intersecting with cinemas, I think her wallpaper still grace the bathrooms at the Como, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? I think so. It's, I think that's her work. It's very, hmm. very florid, very Baroque. Well, that, that film is actually going to be screening um, as a, a, a duo with, with High Tide on April 19 and 20. So list, um, listeners can definitely check those out. Um, how about you, Eloise? What are you excited about for the programme? Oh. Well, the season opens tomorrow, actually, and then with a second screening on this Wednesday, April 13th. Uh, it opens with her first feature film, My Brilliant Career, uh, in a, again, a restoration by the NFSA who do do such important work in terms of recovering and um, preserving film history. Uh, and that'll be, I've never seen that in a cinema. I mean, it's a film that I think a lot of people know or at least familiar with the story of because it's so essential to the history of Australian literature and also film. Um, but seeing it on a big screen will bring a new dimension to it, I think. Just kind of seeing those landscapes, um, seeing the performances, kind of hearing the, the sounds of Australia and the music as well. Absolutely. So head to melbournecinematech.org to book your tickets. Um, you have been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford, Cerise Howard and Eloise Ross. On tonight's show, we spoke with the award-winning director and the subject of Melbourne Cinematech's screening program for the next three weeks, the iconic Gillian Armstrong. We also reviewed two of the films that have been featured in the showcase, uh, her 1982 musical comedy Starstruck and her maternal melodrama High Tide starring Judy Davis and Claudia Carvin. You can, of course, listen back online at rrr.org.au or follow us on our social media channels. A big thank you to Gillian Armstrong for joining us and to my wonderful guests, uh, reviewers Cerise Howard and Eloise Ross. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 